Good morning, everybody. It's nice to be here this morning. If, uh, if we haven't met, my name's Alec. I normally go to the uh, New Life at night, but come and meet me this morning afterwards. I might go to Let's Decide. I haven't decided, so... Um, but we'll see. Um, what we're looking at this morning, what we've been looking at for the last few weeks is, who is Jesus? We're asking you to answer the question, Jesus is. And there's a lot of things that could go in there. We heard this morning from Mark's Gospel that apparently the impure spirits knew right up front, and if you really want to know who Jesus is, read Mark from the beginning to end, and all the way through the question is always, who is this person? And it actually takes till halfway through Mark's Gospel for a person to eventually work it out, although they haven't really worked it out. And if you get right to the end of Mark's Gospel, he tells you to go back to Galilee or maybe what he means is go back to the beginning and read it again because you probably haven't got it. I'm going to pray and then we'll, we'll get started. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your eyes. Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So like I said, we've been looking at who Jesus is over the last few weeks. And we've looked at some of the things that people say about Jesus and how people are finishing the sentence, Jesus is. And we've already heard a few things. We've heard that Jesus is worth telling your friends about. We've heard that Jesus is trustworthy, that he's able to be understood, not misunderstood, that Jesus is the great forgiver and that Jesus is love. We've heard that Jesus is the Son of God and that he's relevant, not irrelevant. And that he's a real person, not a fairy tale. And last week we heard how Jesus can be our crutch. So we've been building a picture of who Jesus is and what that means for us, the people around us and the whole world. But today we're going to have a look at what some people think and that's this idea that Jesus is neglectful. Now, spoiler alert, if you stick with me, um, I'll show you that he's not neglectful. In fact, he's full of compassion that he's good. And when I say compassion, I don't just mean that he has some pity and feels a bit sorry for us. I mean that he's truly compassionate and that he suffers with us. But for now, let's look at what people might mean when they say that Jesus is neglectful. If you read or watch the news through whichever medium is your preference... How often does good news make the headline? For that matter, what proportion of today's news is good? Usually not a lot. And that's because there are a lot of bad things happening in the world right now. Fires, floods, hurricanes, murders, assaults, disease, pain, suffering. And you don't even really have to read the news, do you? There are people here today that have been through terrible things. Some might be right in the middle of them now. And the truth is that even if up to now you've been extremely fortunate, there will be times ahead when you're going to suffer loss and grief. Now, we either look out at the world or we look at what's happening in our lives and we want to know why did Jesus allow this to happen? Does he know? Does he care? Can he do anything about it? Is Jesus neglectful or just indifferent or cruel? When people say that Jesus is neglectful, they might mean a few things, but mostly what we're saying is Jesus isn't 
everything that he says he is. If Jesus is all of the things that we've talked about over the last few weeks, trustworthy, able to be understood, love, son of God, etc., then where was he when I needed him? Or when some catastrophe occurred? Doesn't this prove that he's neglectful or indifferent or cruel? You see, the argument goes something like this. And in case you're wondering, it's not a new argument. It's been around for a long time. How can an all-powerful, all-knowing and perfectly good God, that's the God of the Bible, allow evil, suffering, grief and pain to continue to exist? If he allows it to continue because he can't stop it, then he might be good, but he's not all-powerful. Or if God allows evil and suffering, even though he has the means to stop it, but he chooses not to, then he might be all-powerful, but he isn't good. Or maybe he can and would stop evil and suffering in the world, but he's either absent or he just doesn't know it's happening. So he isn't all-knowing, even if he is good and all-powerful. In any case, what people are saying is that the good, all-powerful, all-knowing Jesus of the Bible can't exist. So let's just abandon the idea of God altogether. So straight away we see that one reaction to suffering is to recoil from Jesus. He's just not there. But in the face of suffering, abandoning faith won't help at all. It won't help you understand your suffering and it won't help you handle suffering. Why not? If seeing or experiencing something terrible has led you to abandon God or just to refuse to believe in, in him in the first place, and there just is no God, then there's also no good. Violence and the crushing of the weak is the natural order of things. It isn't bad for the weak and the powerless to suffer. It's just how things are. If there's no God, then there is no right or wrong. And really, we should expect life to be, as Thomas Hobbes called it, Solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Something to look forward to. Which means we can all do whatever we want, whenever we want, to whoever we want. And it's all okay. So if there's no God, on what basis can we complain about violence in the world or disease or pain? It's just the natural order of things living in a cold, pitiless universe. Everything is random. So best of luck. Hope you're strong enough to survive. Don't expect too much and you might last just a little while. So if you don't believe in God, suffering and evil are an even bigger problem than if you do. Now we could go on philosophizing about this and put up all sorts of intellectual arguments and talk about new and interesting case studies and examples. But if you're really struggling with how a good, all-powerful, all-knowing God, personified in Jesus, can allow suffering and evil to continue, then this isn't a philosophical exercise for you. You've either felt the sting of suffering personally, or your heart breaks when you see what's happening to people in our world. So right up front, I want to say that when you're faced with suffering, we immediately have a choice to recoil from Jesus or to go to him. And I hope that I've shown that to abandon Jesus will only make his suffering turn to despair. But 
If we choose to turn to Jesus in our suffering, we need to be careful that we're turning to the real Jesus. We have to decide whether we believe that Jesus really is essentially good. See, some people say that everything that happens is God's will. Therefore, they believe that God is the one who's causing us to suffer. When there's disease or violence, for instance, people say that that's God's way of punishing people who have sinned. And if you're a religious person and something happens to you, you ask, why is Jesus punishing me? What am I doing wrong? Do I just need to pray more? Do I need to go to church more? Do I need to read the Bible more? It's this sort of thinking that leads to people saying things like, you're only sick because of some unresolved sin or your relationship only broke down because you didn't have enough faith. At the heart of this sort of thinking is that Jesus never did complete his saving work on the cross. Instead, we have to strive to do enough good things and not too many bad things, then Jesus will have to bless us because of what we've done. But Jesus is not petty and he's not tit for tat. He doesn't work through a ledger of what we've done right and wrong today, handing out blessings and curses depending on how our scores turned out. He knows what it's like to have good and bad days. He knows because he walked in our shoes, he was one of us. So Jesus understands, it and be, uh, understands us and because of our, that, it's safe to bring our pain and our honest complaints to him. I also want us to see that the Bible clearly teaches that Jesus does not cause us to suffer in order to make us better and more complete people. For example, the Bible says that when we're going through bad times, it's a mistake to say, as it says in James, I'm being tried by God because it says, when tempted, no one should say God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. In other words, God never causes the trials we face or the suffering that follows. doesn't mean he can't use them for good, but he doesn't bring them. But if God doesn't cause us to suffer, then who or what does? Well, sadly, we're often victimised by each other and the choices we make have bad consequences for other people. Jesus isn't directing people to do awful things to each other we do it out of the desires of our own hearts. We also have to keep in mind that the Bible teaches that ultimately the ruler of this world, Satan or the devil, is responsible for human suffering. It's Satan, not God, who wants us to suffer. But still, Jesus might not cause our suffering, but some people think that he is indifferent to what's happening to us that he's harsh and uncaring. Far from, far from depicting God as pitiless or indifferent, the Bible teaches that God and Jesus are deeply moved by our suffering and that they'll bring an end to it. From the beginning, nothing has gone unnoticed by God. So we can go right back to the beginning in Exodus, in the Old Testament, where the people of Israel were being oppressed and we hear that the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and I'm concerned about their suffering. But God isn't only aware of human suffering, he's also deeply moved by it. 
God was grieved when his people faced trials. Later on in the Bible, when um, the people are sent away in exile, Isaiah tells us that in all their distress, he too was distressed. God feels empathy for people who suffer as if the pain was in his heart. But James tells us that the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. And there are too many times in the New Testament when we see Jesus moved by his compassion for the people he meets to list. But here's just a few. In Matthew chapter 9, we hear that when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. A few chapters on in chapter 14, when Jesus landed, he was on a boat, and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. In Matthew 15, Jesus called to his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I don't want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. And then in Matthew 20, Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed him. And that's just from Matthew. It's all the way through Mark, Luke and John. And in John... We hear that John tells us that when Jesus meets his friend Martha, who has to tell him that her brother Lazarus has died, Jesus isn't gleeful at something that he can now show off something for. It's not a marketing opportunity. He's angry and he's upset, just like we are when we grieve. And he weeps. Does that sound neglectful or indifferent? There's lots of promises in the Old Testament, but there's a promise in Isaiah 43, and you might hear the song as I read this. But it goes like this. But now this is what the Lord says, He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned the flames will not set you ablaze. It's a good promise. Did you notice that it doesn't say, if you pass through the waters, it says when. When you pass through the waters and flame, you'll not be overwhelmed or burned. The promise is not that through faith in God, you'll not go through deep trouble. The promise isn't even if you go through trouble. The promise is that when you go through trouble, God says he'll be with you. You won't be broken by the trouble, you'll be refined by it. Jesus says something very similar to his friends just before he faced his ultimate trial. And we should probably read all of John chapters 14, 15 and 16 and maybe you can do that for homework. But to sum it up, right at the end of that, and this is Jesus talking to his disciples, trying to comfort them before he faces his trial, he just says this, In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Now that's inspiring, or at least I hope that's inspiring. But how do you know that it's true? The only way to know is to go to the cross. It's only at the cross that we can make sense of suffering. When God says he will be with us, 
It's only when you look at the cross that you see how far God was willing to go to keep that promise. He was actually with us as one of us in our suffering. It was an act of compassion when God entered the world in Jesus as one of us. So Jesus knows what it's like to feel happiness and sadness, to delight in friends and family, but also to have them let you down. He knows what it is to suffer rejection, pain, loss, grief, and even death. On the cross, we see Jesus as the sufferer of unjust punishment and death. So if you've suffered unjustly, you can see Jesus doing that too. If you've lost someone close to you, we look at the cross and see the father losing his only son. And when you're calling out, why God? We see Jesus doing that too. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So why did he do it? Jesus knew what was coming. The night, that night in the garden before he was betrayed, he was praying to be spared what was coming because he knew there was more to his suffering because he was receiving the punishment that we all deserve. See, it's our nature to ask God to leave us alone to be our own gods, to have control of our lives and to be free from him. But we don't know what it is that we're asking for. Jesus did. To be taken away from the presence of God is also to lose the source of all good, all light and all life. And what does that leave us with? Evil, darkness and death. So Jesus was on the cross and he knew that his father would turn his face away and he knew what he was about to suffer for us. So when you look at the cross and ask, why are you allowing evil and suffering in the world? You might not get the answer you're hoping for and you might not, what the answer, not know the answer to that question is, but I can tell you what it isn't. The answer can't be that Jesus is neglectful or indifferent or remote or he doesn't care. He loves us so much, he's so filled with compassion that he was willing to take on all of our pain and all of our suffering and get what we deserve. Also that one day he can end all evil and suffering without putting an end to us. So because Jesus was willing to take on ultimate suffering for you, that's our assurance that he will be walking with us in whatever it is we're carrying with us today. But there's more. We have to look beyond the cross. We also need what Paul called a living hope, a living hope of the good that's yet to come. And we see that in the resurrection of Jesus. The physical resurrection of Jesus is the first fruits of our final salvation when we experience the new heaven and the new earth. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us that the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Death has been swallowed up in victory. So if Jesus' resurrection happened, and it did, and that means that our resurrection is going to happen, and it will, then it means that all evil and pain, everything sad, every horrific thing is going to be swallowed up into the victory of our future glory and resurrection. 
And again, Paul, who knew quite a bit about suffering, in the light of the resurrection of Jesus, was able to put suffering into a much bigger context in these words from 2 Corinthians 4. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. And then he goes on to say, Therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not in what is seen, but what is, on, what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And do you know what got Jesus through his suffering? Hebrews 12, 12 tells us that it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. What was this joy? What was he hoping for? It wasn't just eternal happiness and joy with his Father in heaven. He already had that and had to give it up to get to the cross. So what was Jesus' hope? What was he missing in heaven that he didn't already have? It was us. We are his living hope. We're the only thing that he didn't have in heaven. We were worth coming to earth and dying on a cross. That's Jesus' living hope. The thought of all of us, reconciled, perfect, resurrected, restored, glorified, and in his arms. That filled Jesus with such joy that it gave him the tenacity and resolve and the courage that he needed to go through his suffering. Does that sound like indifference or neglect? Knowing that you bring Jesus such joy will mean that he will become your joy and you'll be able to face anything with him. Let's pray. Jesus, some days feel too hard. Some days we are hurting and struggling. We're fighting fear and worry at every turn. Thank you that in the middle of it all, you haven't left us to fend for ourselves. Forgive us for doubting that you're there. Forgive us for thinking you're neglecting us or that you don't care. Forgive us for believing we somehow have the better way. You are fully trustworthy. You are all-powerful. You are able. You understand how we feel and you suffer with us. You are Lord over every situation, no matter how difficult it may seem. You are healer and will never waste the grief we carry today. You will use all things for good in some way. Anything is possible with you. Nothing is too difficult for you. 
So where people have forgotten how to laugh, touch them with your joy. Where people have lost the art of mercy, grow compassion and forgiveness within them. Where they neglect to share bread or medicine or trust or friendship, stir new growth within them. Jesus, we pray for those who grieve today. We ask for your comfort to surround those who weep. We pray for the peace of your presence to cover our minds and thoughts as you remind us the enemy can never steal us from out of your hands. He never has the final say over our lives. We are kept safe in your presence forever, whether in life or death. So let your presence support the weak, encourage the sick, comfort the dying, guide the confused, heal the brokenhearted, soften the hard heart and sweeten the bitter spirit. We thank you that your ways are higher than our ways and your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We lay everything down at the foot of the cross, every burden, every care, believing that is the safest place for it to be. We love you, Jesus, and we need your grace. So let the harvest of our prayers be in your time and in your way. And in your powerful name we pray. Amen. Q&A time. Anybody got any questions this morning? No. It's bound to be one. You got me? Yep. Um, there, there may be questions that you don't want to ask in front of everyone, in which case I might ask Alec and myself will stay after the service to come down. But if there are any questions that people want to ask now, I'm happy to have them. Just aware that you may have questions that would be personal and you might want to ask them in person. Um, where am I going? Up the back. Thank you. Hi, Alec. My Hi. question is, um, I had a conversation with a gentleman at work who's an atheist and he was talking about suffering mm -hmm. and I said, well, the um, world is under the devil's control at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, how do you then go on to um, address that with people who don't believe in God or the devil? Hmm. So is the question, how do you... Talk How do you carry atheists? on with that conversation and, and take it to the next level of explaining that the world, the suffering in the world is not God's uh, doing? Well, I'd probably start with a question and, and the question would be something like, um, are you asking this because you've got something that you're dealing with at the moment? And then it's probably better to talk about that. Or you're asking this because you're shooting the breeze and, you've, and it's an intellectual thing. And you want to have an argument? Yeah. yeah. Um, he he wasn't. He was saying that he was an atheist because he believes that God was causing all the suffering. And I said, well, that's not actually right. So how do you talk to an atheist who doesn't believe in God, but then blames God for all the suffering yeah, in the world? Okay. Well, um, just up front, there's there's two types of atheists. I think there's there's people who um, who think they've worked it all the way through, and that's the conclusion they've come to. There's another kind of atheist who actually does believe in God, but they're really angry at him. Um, so I wouldn't call them an atheist at all, even if that's what they'd call him. So when they see things in the world, they go, well, like we said before, 
if God's good, then how does he allow this to happen? He can't be all-powerful. Or if he's all-powerful, he's not good because this happened to me or somebody I know. Um, the thing is, God doesn't cause the suffering. Now, he can use it, and there are great examples in the Bible where people did terrible things to other people. Now, God didn't make them do those, but he was able to use that for something good in the end. In the meantime, the person who was suffering was suffering. So God didn't cause that, but he can use it for good. Unfortunately for that person, they might never find out. Other people might benefit, but that person might not. So the first thing is God doesn't cause the suffering. Most of it is actually caused by us. When people flash the pictures of the starving people in Africa, we all know that the world produces more food than everybody in the world actually needs to eat every day. Now, we benefit from that and they don't. We've managed, and when I say we, it's not just us, obviously, everybody in the world, we've managed to make a world where there are people that have and there are people that don't have. It's probably our job to somehow figure out a way to fix that. Sometimes it's overwhelming and all we can do is hand it over to God and say, we don't know. Um, But we have a hand in these things. And when I say we, it is collectively our guilt and we do cause some of those things. You could argue climate change, if, if, if you wanted to, that the things we choose to do now are affecting things that happen later. So 